0: Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was fortunate enough to have uh, five or six high school and college students visiting with me right out front. Uh, Two semesters of the school year in, uh, to their great credit, they had finally uh, worked up the courage to cross the street and uh, engage with uh, somebody that they think is probably totally Nuts. And they are totally right about that, by the way. Uh, but by God's grace, we ended up having a substantial conversation about matters of life and death. Though the topics would later become more cultural or moral, there was initially some very basic questions about forgiveness at the outset. It came up because the common statement was said, well, basically all religions teach the same thing, all religions believe the same thing, which is great whenever I hear that because it gives me the opportunity to say, well, actually, uh, yes, many religions have in common uh, some teachings on moral law, that is how we are to live our lives, but when it comes to the gospel, Christianity is truly unique. That is, only Christianity has the gospel because only Christianity has God becoming human flesh and dying for the sins of the world on the cross and being risen from the dead. So, most religions, again, in case you ever encounter this, uh, do have in common many moral behaviors, uh, but only Christianity can truly offer forgiveness. God demands payment for sin, and we should be thankful Uh, that Jesus Christ paid the price for sin. That definitely then puts uh, Christianity in exclusive territory. And dare I say, uh, it will be said to be judgmental territory. And that was the immediate response. Hey, wait a minute. Other religions can offer forgiveness too. Now this is an excellent opening. Uh, one that uh, the evangelist can only dream of having. We are then right in the middle of the gospel, the corest of core issues. And so I asked for an example uh, of another religion that offers forgiveness and the process by which, or the mechanism, if you will, by which this forgiveness can be offered. Now, two of the students were uh, maybe not practicing Muslims, but they grew up in Islamic uh, countries or households. And they said, well, Islam offers forgiveness, and the mechanism by which it is offered is prayer. Well, sure enough, that is absolutely correct on Islam. There, there is no uh, Jesus as God's son. He did not die on the cross. He was not risen from the dead. The mechanism is just basically prayer. You can ask God for forgiveness and he will pray. The Christian issue with that is that Islam does not testify to true things, uh, therefore we can't trust what it says on this issue either. So the teaching on forgiveness within Islam might be perfectly lovely, but if it is not truly speaking for the one true God who is known, we would say, through the scriptures, then that understanding of forgiveness just cannot be correct. But more to the point, the idea that a God as holy and just as the one true God could forgive only by our asking is a diminution. You know, see, I wrote that word and I couldn't say it. Diminution, diminution of God's holiness. There needs to be a payment for sin. God requires it. That is why the Son of God was crucified. So these twin issues of sin and forgiveness are uniquely addressed and dealt with in Christianity. The mission of Christ church, then, is to proclaim forgiveness, not only so that our individual souls can be at peace with our God, but also so that we can find peace among one another. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I want more peace uh, in my neighborhood, in my community, in my city, in my country. It's a bit of a cliche, but it is true. Hurt people hurt people. And well, forgiven people forgive people. So seriously, it really does make a difference. And while poor, Thomas's doubting is often the focus of this passage uh, on Easter 2. Jesus makes clear here the importance of forgiveness. In some of the uh, few words that we have recorded from Jesus after his resurrection, Jesus says to those gathered ten, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. The King James said remitted, right? But if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So for the sake of the world, the church is to let people know that the sins which shame them, which are destructive to families and whole societies, that they have been accounted for in Christ. And the church of the apostles is given the authority by Christ himself to pronounce forgiveness Of those sins. We are like an army. We are ready and able to be dispatched all over the world at a moment's notice, ready with a word of forgiveness so that man can be at peace with God and therefore his neighbor. Good news, to be sure. But what about the second part of that statement? It's equally remarkable, but it is often ignored. Whatever sins you retain will be retained. The church, this side of death, has the authority to make your sins stick to you, uh, to literally keep you out of heaven because of them. Jesus is saying, that the church can speak on the issue both ways. Uh, And this is called the office of the keys. Uh, That's why I was mentioning uh, one of the pyramids. I think it's our red pyramid for Pentecost or Reformation. It's got two kind of skeleton keys on it. And that's actually part of the papal logo or insignia as well, because the uh, Roman Catholic Church holds that they alone possess the office of the keys, because that was given to Peter and therefore all the future popes etc cetera, etc cetera. and this office of the keys is to unlock or to lock right to loosen or bind sin i think it's clear in this text that this is given to all of the apostles and therefore the church of the apostles but is this judgmental we would say no it's simply exercising right judgment What might prevent someone from being forgiven? I'd say at least three things I can think of quickly. Uh, One is that there is no admission or acknowledgement of sin. Uh, Sin needs to be confessed that it can be forgiven. Two, there's an admission of sin, uh, but it's met kind of only with a shrug. Well, yeah, sin, but who cares? You know, there's no repentance. Or three, maybe there is a truly a desire there, but there's no amendment of life. There's no change Uh, in the outward behavior of the person. If a pastor observes any of these three things, it could be said that the sins cannot or will not be forgiven, but are, in fact, retained. And I realize, of course, how harsh that sounds, but so are our sins harsh against God. And this aspect of Jesus' teaching is something that the church needs to get a lot more comfortable with. For the past, I don't know, put a, put a number a year on it, 50 years, the uh, PR campaign of the church was basically only concerned with the first half of the teaching. We wanted everyone to know that God loved them in such an unconditional way that all sins, no matter what, would be forgiven. You know, times have changed. You know, it's not the God of the 18th century anymore. You can like God now. Uh, He's nice again. This was kind of the message of the church. And it is true that the second half of this teaching on the retention of sin has been abused by the church uh, throughout history. Uh, It was used, for example, by popes who would threaten excommunication of kings if they didn't get what they want. Uh, Hey, you do what I say, or I'm going to retain your sin, and if they're retained, you can't get into heaven been some pretty famous examples of kings, you know, begging popes for forgiveness for that very reason. But that was like 800 years ago. It's been a while since we've really dealt with that. In more modern times, as church attendance declined, we started to panic. And so the marketing department of the church got together, huddled in a room, and said, look, this forgiveness-only language has got to really be ramped up. We've got to get people to like us again. And so the world listened as that became our prevailing message, and we refused to stand our ground. And over time, the church had less and less to offer, and we lost our moral authority. And now that some of us, like cranky curmudgeons like your pastor, are trying to get it back, it is often met with the fiercest opposition from within the church, Uh, Having been trained for at least two generations in seminary never to say a word against the sinner, they are content to let it stay that way. My father's congregation is taking a vote this afternoon to disaffiliate from their denomination. It seems that a majority in the congregation essentially are saying that the church still has the right to name and retain sin but a minority of the congregation is saying that the church can only ever forgive if sins are even named or identified anymore. Because the church property is worth millions of dollars and they give millions of dollars uh, to the denomination, there have been lawsuits, television commercials, social media campaigns, uh, and lots of dirty tricks that have all been employed to keep the church from disaffiliation. Here's the deal. So that's kind of the real world outworking of this teaching of Jesus. That's the bottom line. This forgiveness, retention of sin, how we identify sin, it has very real world consequences. But here's the thing. If we aren't willing to tell our neighbor in love that their sins are retained, okay, if we're never willing to do that, then we really have no authority to pronounce forgiveness either. There are either these things called sins that we need to do away with, or there are not such things called sins. If they are real, we need to be honest about them. Lying about them, ignoring them, or celebrating them has been a disaster for the church, as she has refused to speak with one voice and is now losing her voice. We are, just as when Jesus first said these words to those apostles, right? In that first day of resurrection, and then with Thomas uh, a week later, a minority voice in the wilderness. And there are times when it looks like we cannot possibly compete with the powers that be. But over time, as we saw in the early church, as God's word was fearlessly proclaimed and defended, when the truth of the resurrection was believed, even by those who were not there to see it, which is what Jesus says to Thomas Christianity changed the world by forgiving sins and bringing peace, and by retaining sins and striking the rightful fear of God into man. That is where we stand now. So, this text is a reminder to get our, as they say today, messaging in order. We proclaim that there is a God, that he has revealed himself to us, that his word is a trustworthy record of his revelation, and that the church of the apostles functions with the authority of Christ himself. Salvation is truly found in the church, and death is found outside her walls. To any with ears to hear, let them hear. For the risen Christ claims this authority for himself and for his bride, the church. Let us be fearless in saying what he has bidden us to say, so an unbelieving world may turn to God and live. Amen.